Okay, now it's recording. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living social history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this planet or world. <laughs> you, can, you can do it again if you want to say it. Oh, I think that's good enough. I'm blessed with a country that has one of the greatest stereotypes of all time. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. like that joke called Ruby World Without Comedy in Germany. That was written for me. Who else can say it better than the guy in Lederhosen coming from Germany? I yeah. mean, like, plenty of people use the joke, you know, so, but it's just, you know, here we go. Thank you very much. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. yeah. How does one decide to embrace a stereotype and turn it into a career-defining, award-winning character that's loved around the world? For Michael Hilby, it was a very organic process, and one that genuinely stemmed out of a love of juggling and his ability to listen to what his audience wanted him to be. Giving the people what they want is certainly a guiding principle in Hilby's approach, and he's clearly driven to make his show as entertaining as possible and makes no qualms about the use of stock or standard lines if they produce the desired effect. This brings up ethical questions for many performers, and Hilby freely admits that he's made mistakes along the way. Luckily, he encountered mentors who helped guide his journey and define the rights and wrongs of this profession, but there's always a temptation of lifting a line or a bit simply because you know it's going to work. How one deals with the temptation and one's own weakness will in the end define you and your story from the pitch. All right, let's do this. Well, we're here with Michael Hilby. He'll be the skinny German juggle boy. Michael, by the way, in case you wonder. Oh, is it? It's a German pronunciation of Michael. Michael, yeah. Michael. Well, I think the first question is, uh, how long did it take you to perfect that German accent? It's been years in the making, and I'm almost there. I'm so close. It's, it's as really I said, you know. It's really convincing. You know, if your parents are from Sweden, it's tough to be German. You know. <laughs> is that right? No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> just good material. Man. That's good. Just already <laughs> going for it. <laughs> This is the World Busker Festival in Croatia, gentlemen. Yeah, 20th year. anniversary. 20th anniversary. Yeah. yeah. Only and the this best is, the best. And this year it's special because you know Jody got a lot of acts who, that's probably, who knows, I mean, that, and I'm just paraphrasing what the acts say themselves, oh, that's probably my last time I'm going to be here, you mm-hmm. know, like Flying Dutchman, Glenn Singer, so they're all yeah. treating it in a special way, you know, so, and it's really fantastic to get to hang out with them again, yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. It's a really fun lineup. I love this place. I love New Zealand. Yeah, it's beautiful. I might retire here. Yeah? Yeah, I can see myself. When are you going to retire? I don't know. Hey, I mean, retirement sounds such a, like, it's such a weird word, retiring. It's like, almost like work. I remember, like, one sitting on the table and it was a little girl and one guy said, I have to go to work now. And the girl asked me, it's like, what does that mean? And I couldn't really explain to her what that means, work. So I decided actually not to use it for my own vocabulary anymore. When I go, I always say to my kids, I'm going to go juggle for everybody now. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, so they know exactly what's happened. Yeah. Yeah, I retire. I don't know. You know, I... You you seem like you're having too much fun. I'm having too much fun. And, you know, I'm getting to the point now where, you know, in the beginning, there is some anxiety often because we're constantly self-employed, especially when you start off. You know, you really don't know where the next paycheck comes from. But then... If you are good at it, like almost with anything, you're going to come to a point where you will be presented with choices, you know, and I can sort of choose a little bit now what I want to do. And 
now when I'm here, it's like I want to take advantage of that. Yeah. Know? So um, yeah, I kind of white to white, see yeah. what happens. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's just start at the beginning. How did you get your start in uh, street theater? I was a social worker in Germany, and I took a semester off, and I said I'm going to travel, and I never came back. And while I was in Asia, I learned how to juggle, and I really fell in love with juggling itself. And then I ran out of money. And when you're in Asia and you juggle just for practice, for fun, you always attract an audience yeah. by default, you know. I mean, I wouldn't pass ahead, but I would always have an audience and I would sort of interact with them a little bit just for fun, just stuff for the kids. And then we traveled around China and Tibet and we always did little shows in the square. And it wasn't really so much of a show as like a display of our skill. One would play the guitar and one would throw the yo-yo up. That was How really, many people were you? It was four of us. We called ourselves the Astro Gypsies, <laughs> you know, and it was pretty wild and crazy. And there we did actually put a head out and half of the money we would give to another street performer, usually a local guy who would play an instrument or so and the other half we used for food and illegal substances. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how old were you? Um, I was 21. Wow. Yeah. And then I really fell in love with it and the really first time I really did it for money was in Bangkok and then I actually made some substantial amount, a substantial amount in the days where I didn't really need it much, where yeah. I on $5 a day, but enough to make it to Hong Kong and then I did Hong Kong. I got arrested there for street performing. Well, and how did that go? I got deported. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <that> was, <laughs> um, and I went to Japan and then all of a sudden wow I really made some serious money from my standards and it's like oh this is awesome I love that and apparently people seem to enjoy it and they're making money did you teach yourself juggling when you were traveling abroad? Somebody from Sweden showed me the basics, and then I just kept at it. I would just practice, 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 and then you meet other hippies in India, and they do know how to juggle. They show you a trick, and other people show you a trick. And I remember I had a girlfriend at the time, and she flew back, and she sent me the complete juggler, mm-hmm. the Dave Finnegan book, yeah. and I just went through that. And I had, like, uh, wooden clubs I had made by Woodmaker in Pakistan. I remember that. Wow. Yeah. Do you and still have them? No, I don't. You know, that history. That would be history. Yeah. But it could be creative. Yeah. <laughs> so when you just decided to start juggling, did you think that this was going to be something you were going to keep doing? No, I just, didn't, just a, I didn't look that far ahead, but I knew that this is something, wow, what a shame that I haven't really sort of um, found that earlier. You know, yeah. I was like in my 20s and already, but I knew this is something I really love and I want to explore it and see what happens with it, yeah. Had you seen street performers grow up in Germany at all? Can't see, not really consciously where I saw and really thought about it. You know, I, my mom volunteered me once for like a mime and I hated it, so, <laughs> but no, not really. So, uh, going back to getting deported from Hong Kong. Oh, that's a good story. Like, um, that's, just, <laughs> that's a stupid former Luke. You know who you are. Uh, <laughs> 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 it's actually turned out to be a good friend. But he was doing the pitch in Star Ferry. I don't know if you're familiar with Hong Kong, but you know. have Kowloon and then you have mainland Hong Kong. Yeah. And there's a ferry going back and forth. And that's where all the traffic is. That's where the action is. And he had always that pitch and he was like jogging fire. And he told me, oh, I'm going to Japan so you can have the pitch now. But he didn't tell me that he was warned twice by the police that if he's been seen again that they're going to bust him and not in a fun way and then he said oh it's all yours now hey, it's all yours you can have it it's your pitch Dirty. and I don't know as much as probably like Asian people look the same to us so I was tall and blonde I went out I didn't even open my suitcase and the guys screeching tires and the guys came out and they were really mean and nasty and I didn't get it until then I put A and B together, and I met Luke later on in Japan, and he was laughing. <laughs> you know Luke. <laughs> but now we're good friends, and you know, I don't think he had any harm. Right. You know, uh, Just a, a piece yeah. of information he forgot to mention. Yeah. A really important piece of information. <laughs> By the way, you might get arrested, but it's all yours. Yeah. 
All right, so then you were in Japan, and then at this point you were thinking, wow, I, this is something I can do. It's, I made like I made more money than I ever made in my life, you know. And did um, you feel like you had, did you have a show at that point that you no not just, at all still just juggling, <laughs> no, just juggling on Diablo. That was like the one thing I really enjoyed, and um, I had a sort of like a unique angle because I didn't see anybody do it, so I sort of teach myself. So I had a pretty unique style, and um, I actually had a sign out, I had a little cardboard box, and the sign like leaned against it that says, oh, "Japan is very expensive. I love your country. I want to learn more about it," which was true because I went there also to be part of a peace walk so I was really intrigued by Japan but I made just as much or more money sometimes just sitting there having a coffee next to the sign than yeah. when I actually stood there and I basically just stood there and showed him my skill you know just play the Diablo like a didn't madman didn't talk at all didn't talk at all I didn't speak any Japanese at this point and then you know as it goes along you see like oh this is a trick they like so let me do that trick and then I learned a little bit of Japanese I learned more and more and more and I learned enough to sort of like put a little show together and there were a lot of people who saw all the similar kind of shows more of unicycle juggling fire eating fire and 20 minutes bang 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 yeah so short show, short show mostly short skill show. mostly skill not yeah. real comedy you weren't no not back right. then yeah but you figure out, oh, look, this seemed to be funny. Let me remember that and then try that again, yeah. Yeah. Were you always, like, a comedian, always someone that was playful and... Always really playful, but I wasn't really, like, outgoing in the sense that I would display that in front of other people. Yeah. But, yeah, I would. I like to believe that I was a funny guy. I was always a class clown and so forth, yeah. So it was a yeah. sort of natural feeling. Yeah, it was a natural extension from that, yeah. yeah. So you go back to Japan, you're there for a while. How long did you spend in Japan? I made enough money to join the Peace Walk again because by then I had some debt I had to pay and I just street performed until I could pay it back and then I joined um, you know, the mother of my children to finish the Peace Walk from Tokyo to Hiroshima and then she went back to the States and I stayed on for another two months and I needed enough money then to go to the States and sort of have some time and freedom to you know, work on some more skills and work on the show and try to establish in the States and then for the first four years I would always go back to Japan and go for the golden week period and the cherry blossom time and street perform for two, three months, make enough money sort of to sustain the family at home and then work in the United States to get more bookings and, you know, do the street there. And then as you started developing this, you're starting to think, well, how can I add to the skill? And you start adding the comedy. And this comes from... Well, seeing other shows, you know, yeah. like I never really seen anybody else doing something. I remember being in Osaka and I'm there on Dottenbowie Bridge and doing my mad skills stuff, you know, without talking much. And Baldwin Woodhead and Justin Case and um, Dave the Wave huh. showed up yeah. and watched me. I had no idea who these cats were. And then they told me to come down to the aquarium, there's a street performer festival. And I went down to the pitch and watched the shows and I'm like, holy crap, you know, there's actually like full developed 45 minute shows with costumes and sets and patterns in the beginning and middle and an end and like wow look now there's something I can work for you know so um, then it was clear to me yeah there's tons of improvement to be done and let's work on it so that was the first time you'd really first seen time it. I really consciously saw a street performance yeah so a lot of influence then absolutely yeah shows. and then I saw I mean and to this day it's some of my favorite shows still you know yeah yeah so, at what point did you start developing the early version of, I guess, with the show you're doing now? Well, oh, I, like the skinny German jogger boy? That's yeah. about five years in, five into years the in. journey. You know, I had a business card that was saying, like, I just saw it the other day, it was like the jogging experience. Mm-hmm. It's pretty crap, but, you know, yeah. you know that, that was my angle back then. And I'm um, no lederhosen, you know, I still had the German accent, but I wasn't really sort of working with the German stereotypes so much, you mm-hmm. know. And then I got a job at Bush Gardens, in Williamsburg I worked there all summer and you know you do six months in a theme park five six shows a day you have a show yeah 
And you know also, is this what you want to do for a living? And in the winters, I would go down to Key West for two seasons and, you know, do street shows there. And same thing, if you survive Key West, you know, okay, I'm ready. (laughs) So So at what point do you feel like you had that first show that is the show now where you felt like, I found it, I found my voice, I found this show? Oh, that's a tough one. I'm a skinny German juggle boy. He was five, six years in, and I already had done Halifax before that, and it was a successful show. And so you've done, you done some festivals. Yeah, and the show was successful. I mean, people seemed to enjoy it, and I made enough money then in the States to sort of make a living and sustain myself. But I think the skinny German juggle boy, I would say that's like seven, eight years in, and yeah, very, really, oh, this is it. Yeah. 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 So you were doing festivals before you really had what you have now. The skinny German yeah. juggle boy, like... If you look, like, I have some newspaper clippings from Halifax and Windsor from way back. What year is that? Um, 98. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't wear the leather hose and, you know, having, like, sort of, like, a Buster Keaton kind of suit. You know, very clowny. When you did Halifax, uh, that first time, was that the first major festival you'd done? That was, like, I did Windsor and, I guess, and Kelly saw me there and then she invited me to do Halifax. Yeah. Yeah. How much different was that from what you've been doing? Well, obviously, the amusement park's going to be a bit different than the streets of Japan. I was too luxury. I thought, you know, like, Key West is pretty rough and edgy. I thought, you know, in Japan, too, you're sort of on your own. You have to carry all your stuff, you know. You have to shout because there's no amplification. All of a sudden, they were, like, volunteers. Yeah. It's Canada. And they would pick up your stuff, and there would be sound systems, you know, and programs. So... I was like, wow, is that that street performing? You know, that's awesome. I really like that. Yeah, it was great. And we would go and there were already people at your pitch. Yeah. So, yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Easy, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. So then this is the late 90s. Throughout this, were you still just doing pure street or were you mostly doing... No, then I picked up gigs. You know, people see you. You hand out your card and then you start doing, like, schools. And then I also started doing some cruise ships as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I always really liked, you know, being able to to have a walking show on the street, do a walking show at an elementary school and do the cruise ships. You know, it's like sort of being able to successful in all these different venues. Yeah, you have a show that can work anywhere. And it it keeps it diverse and interesting for yourself as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. When was the last time uh, you did just a street show, like not at a festival, not at a... Like where I just went out? you just like, yeah. Well, you know, in my town I go, but even then it's not really a street show anymore so much because, well, oh, look, there's heavy. Yeah, 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 yeah. So... It's been a while. I mean, yeah. like, then I would crash a lot of festivals in the States. I would go to these arts and street festivals, and I would just crash it. But often then I would book him the next year because it's, oh, this is fun, you know, let's see if we can hire him. And But really, the street, and also in the United States, you know how it is in the United States, there isn't really many street street pitches. You have to, like, you know, audition yeah. and sign up for it. Yeah. And, like, the, the last time I remember, is, so really where I would, like, do solid streets was, like, sort of 10 years ago, I would go down to Charlottesville and do the Friday after 5 thing where we would just hit town. But no, it's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have the kind of show that it wouldn't take much for you to be able to just go on the street and just... No, and I would do you it. Have, you have this, the skill and you have the comedy and it's fast and... It'd be really easy, I think. And I would do it if I would be near pitch, yeah. you know, if I had to. But fortunately or unfortunately, depending which side you look at it, I'm pretty solidly booked you yeah. know, a year ahead of time. Yeah. So, That's yeah. good. And uh, you're doing a lot of the cruise ships, and you've been doing that for a few years? Um, for me, the season is sort of like, you know, May to September, October. And then I do from November till, till April, I do about 10 contracts. I fly in for a week usually, go home for a week, and fly out again for a week, yeah. And the difference between doing... A street theater festival and a cruise ship. How much different do you? 
I was so intimidated during my first cruise ship. I said, oh my God, a cruise ship, you know, the, the, you know, the hype moment, you know, you, you reach the pinnacle of it. You know, and it was really, it's really so easy and one of the easiest gigs in the world. Oh, well, they're sitting there. It's a cruise, it's a week, you know, you work two times one night. Yeah. And then maybe a split show, so you do a total of three hours. And yeah, as you said, you know, they come in there, they're ready for you. And yeah. most people are way too old to get up doing the show anyhow. So <laughs> it's, it's really easy and fun, yeah. But how much different, like here, we've had some hot days, it's cold and you have these different challenges. Is that, do you enjoy that more than... Like the challenge of working outdoors in a street festival than in a cruise ship where it's everything's laid out. For I you. enjoy in each one like equally because I have the different experiences. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would enjoy any one of them for the whole time through. You I break would, it up so you can exactly. You know, I don't think I would enjoy going from one street festival to the other, hanging out all day on the pitch and so forth. I quite enjoy knowing. Okay, I have Monday to Friday to read books, go to the gym, do my nails and be in the sun and then you know work hard on one day and I enjoy being here because I know it's 10 days but if I had to 10 days live in the YMCA like for a year and sit on the pitch waiting for my turn yeah that would totally go on my nerves yeah yeah yeah. it's nice you can break it up and what do you think is uh, about your show that makes it work for you or for the audience I don't know I, I sort of subscribe to the philosophy it's like I try to project that there's no other place in the world I'd rather be than right now, right here for you people. And I think I'm pretty good at selling it. And yeah. people respond to it. They have an emotional reaction almost to it. They, they like me for more than just the comedy. And it's like, I think that's what I'm good at. Like making it sound like, oh, this is the first time I said that joke. Yeah. You know, you're the first time people hear that joke. You know, and even it can be the, the most standard stock line, but I think I have some kind of a neck for like making it sound. It's the very first time. Well, right it's now. like you're having fun. Exactly. And if you project that really well, then the people... And I do. I really genuinely do. I don't even have to fake it. I yeah. come out and it's like, this is awesome. I'm really getting paid for what I really love. Yeah. And not only did I do what I love to do, but I'm also good at it at the same token. Mm-hmm. These things feed each other. It's, yeah, it's fun. And I think people really respond to it. If you're comfortable on stage, they feel comfortable. If you're uncomfortable, usually I project as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's an unknown thing that people yeah. can feel when you up on stage and you're yeah, I totally agree, yeah. you're in a bad mood. They're not going to be engaged yep. and you really have to put your head in the right space for a show. Um, <clears throat> where, what were your biggest influence then? Uh, I know you mentioned uh, Waldo and Woodhead and Dave Rave and these guys when you first started out. Are those, were there other performers that really framed how you built your show? Yeah, um, you know, like I must say, then I met Robert Nelson, the Butterfly Man, and Jerry Vaughan, and, and Johnny Fox. I got to see a lot of really great shows in my time. That's one of the great things I love about what I'm doing, too, that I get to see a lot of shows which I think are just brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And then a lot of silent comedians, like Buster Keaton is one of my favorites of all time, you know. And then any kind of comedy, any kind of performance, for that matter, from modern dance to, you know, theater and opera. Yeah. You do dance a lot in your show, don't you? Yeah. see a lot of modern dance in your show. All right. What are your favorite type of street performers and why? What are my favorite type of street performers? Almost every single show is an influence in a way because I always take something away from it, even if it's something where I know, okay, I'm not going to do that, you know, where I learn what not to do. Sure. But almost any show I can enjoy on some kind of level, yeah. Yeah, that's valuable. 
negatives and positives. Sure, it's interesting because I was just interviewed two days ago by because of the Critics' Choice Award. Um, he wanted to sort of like do follow up. You, you won know, the Critics' Choice Award here yeah, last, last year. year, and he wanted to do follow up on what my year's been like. And then I knew he's going to look me into the question. It's like, who's my favorite act? <laughs> and I did my homework the night before. Where I looked at every single act, and I found something nice to say about every single act. So. Um, I just watched The Flying Dutchman's again. For some reason, I just... I can watch a show over and over again. There's certain shows I can't sit through the whole thing, but still enjoy certain bits and pieces. And there's a few shows I could just watch a hundred times in a row. I think The Flying Dutchman had to be one of them. Robert Nelson was always... The Butterfly Man was always a show. Gazo was always on a show. Jerry Wone, Wildwood Woodhead. I mean, there's, I yeah. loved your show this morning. I think that was such a great experience. I didn't even want to watch it. I just wanted to get ready, do some stretching backstage. And there were just so many great moments, and the volunteers were so great. And yes. you, you, you didn't even have to get in character because we partied so hard last night. <laughs> it's great, you know. Yeah, so, here's that beer yeah, that I didn't bring yeah. that I said I was going to bring. Yeah. I am going to oh, drink sure. that in the morning. Bottle nope. bag. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's tell some stories. I know you got a million stories probably about things that have happened on or off stage besides you getting arrested and deported. In, yeah, there's a story. Hong <laughs> Kong. It's always hard because, like, if people ask me, like, I can think of stories when I'm in the middle of a conversation. Yeah, so it's not a really like funny story. Like, so you yeah, hear somebody yeah. else, so, oh, man, I have this one, you know, this is really good. Yeah, yeah. like, the first night, in fact, um, we were in uh, Jean Michel's room. Yeah. There's just stories left and right. One after like, the other, yeah. And we've been telling each other, like, like Robert Nelson stories, which I think is great. But no, I have stories, you know, like, I did a tour with Vilda Yankovic, I was his opening act, and I remember the first night we did the sound check and everything. And the sound guy goes in the water. He goes, just leave your wood case there, you know. Just set it all, preset it for the show. And I did, and I went out to have some lunch. And the water guy decided, oh, it's not safe. So he closed it and locked it. And I never have a key for it. <laughs> <laughs> so I go out. This is the first show. That's the first show. There's 2,000 people in the theater. <laughs> and then I tried to open the case, and I can't open the case. And the, and the, the Woody guy was gone. He was nowhere to be found. And, and it was funny for the beginning. I was sweating internally and externally. And then we had to, like, physically, <laughs> with a big screwdriver, break my wood case open. Yeah. It's during the show. Yeah. It could happen. Just to start the show, yeah. And how did you get past that? moment I mean because I now it's, it's, a, it's a wrench or a screwdriver thrown into the whole thing and you I subscribe to the theories like you know if you can't hide it highlight it you know yeah. I mean, there's no reason to get stressed out over it you know that's just the way it is you know yeah. and make it part of it you know one way or the other and, and hopefully it works it doesn't always you know but if it does these are like the moments you remember that's for sure <laughs> it's like yesterday when the Flying Dutchman which just Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong from the unicycle breaking from, you know, the torches not living. And these are the shows you're going to remember and they're going to remember. You don't yeah. remember the show where everything went smooth and perfectly. That's the ones. Yeah. yeah. But luckily at this festival, there's like 18 unicycles, so you're able to... I know, and I felt so proud that I took it out. You yeah. Know, I took the unicycle out and I felt really good, yeah. Yeah. That was pretty funny because, what, the pedal broke. But then they're asking for a unicycle. You went running backstage, like I to, knew it's gonna come in. And then you went running back on, and I, no reaction. Nothing. <laughs> you yeah. come on stage with the unicycle. Nothing. That was confirming <laughs> that it was a good choice to take it out of the show. Yeah. 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 How about a street-related story besides just opening for Weird Al? Yeah. How long did you play for him? I did three dates with him. Just three. Yeah. Yeah. 
Where is that? In Pennsylvania, New York. Okay. Yeah. He has um, always a variety act opening or comedian or so. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Oh, many, many bands do that now because then they don't have to deal with another band, yeah. sound checking, and, yeah. you know, potentially being better musicians yeah. than them, you know. So. Well, he's not really a band. So much oh, man. His musicians are, like, awesome. Like, yeah. You know, you ask other bands, like Devo, they say, like, that he plays the song actually technically better because he's been playing with his cats for 20 years you yeah. Know? so yeah, yeah. Know well I know he's amazing on that yeah, but, but I, don't, I don't think of him as a band I think of him as a, he's a oh, it's comedy an, musician it's a spectacle yeah. yeah he's yeah, great yeah. costume changes and then he has all these great movies playing you know so yeah let me think about a street story maybe a particular festival something happened you know, how, how many times like for example like Halifax that's a big one how many times have you done Halifax I've done Halifax only once only once and that, like in 90 something in 98 and I never applied for it again really? you um, think you just would have been asked but it wasn't one of the festivals it's particularly my favorite either yeah. yeah I don't know I like festivals like this where you do one or two shows a day and it's pretty peaceful you can walk back to your room yeah, and you know nice. take a nap make some food you know and in Halifax it seemed like you're constantly on the page yeah. you know and yeah. just sort of yeah. waiting for the next show to happen and yeah. I'm not a big fan of that so here I love it and then I luckily I've been doing this festival for the fifth time now so yeah I would come back anytime when was the time. first time you've done this in 2000 2000 yeah and then you did it this year last year obviously cause you and then the last year and then if you win the critic shows you come back the following year yeah yeah so when you uh, found I'm just gonna go back a bit when we were talking about uh, when you found the character and you did that first show as the character. Had you kind of thought about it and said, okay, I've done this, I want to kind of exploit the fact that I'm German and then create the show, or did it just kind of evolve naturally? It, it was naturally. And the way it came, I was actually on a cruise ship and I was very flirtatious with the waitress and she would always call me, hey, joggle boy, you know, a German joggle boy. And then one day doing a show, I, I made a joke, I don't even remember what it was, but she said, come on, skinny German joggle boy. And the audience laughed. And it's like, oh, wait a moment. So I kept repeating it. And they really responded to it. And then when people talked about the show, it's like, oh, I saw that skinny German, this juggle boy, you know. And it's like, oh, that's a tag. This can kind of work. And then it's like, well, let's do the classic comedy writing about it. And then just took it apart. And what comedy revolving around that character, yeah. You just found all the jokes. Yeah, and then you got the later holes. And, you know, I'm a firm believer in having an outfit and costume, you know. Yeah. So, um, and it's like, bingo. And then also I remember doing the Maryland Renaissance Fair, like, 16 years ago or so and that's when I first time actually wore a lederhosen because I was at the Renaissance Fair and I had these like ugly tights and I felt so uncomfortable in my own skin it's like this sucks I really don't want to be part of this I feel so uncomfortable and couldn't juggle with this freaking fluffy shirt you know <laughs> and then so, who, I don't know what it was I think it was Johnny Fox or something he came up to me and it's like you're an idiot just wear lederhosen I mean it's like it's a no brainer I can't believe you haven't thought about it and I'm like oh thank you that's why I have friends yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know and then um, I got myself a pair of and instant character, yeah. Did you feel the difference when you when you did oh, that? Absolutely, no question asked. Yeah, and you said, okay, this is this is going to work. Absolutely, yeah. Then did you change into Lederhosen or you came out in Lederhosen? On the street show, if I had to get an audience, I had to do draw. That was always what I would do for draw, getting into the um, Lederhosen. Yeah, and more in the southern hemisphere than in, in Canada and the United States. You know, they don't, they're not as liberal about nudity yeah. as they are in other parts of the world. So yeah. in the States, when I would do street shows, I would always be in little and they don't like... Yeah, you can't, you can't stand on the street in your underwear. Yeah, it's unfortunate, you know. And you live in New York, you know. Upstate, yeah. yeah. And when did you move from... Uh, 
because you were saying from way back you were going back and forth from the States to Japan when did you yeah. move from Germany oh when I left Germany when I travelled and so I was travelling for about two years I spent time in India and Pakistan Tibet and all these countries just to kind of be a hippie well in the beginning yeah totally yeah it was <laughs> like wow this is awesome I mean Traveling is one of the easiest things in the world in that sense that you have absolutely no responsibilities rather than to wake up and just fill the day with, and then I found juggling and so said, this is great, and I got along really cheaply, I spent five dollars a day, and then I met my future wife and the mother of my children, and she was on that international peace walk, and that ended in Japan, so this is how I ended up in Japan, the peace walk was over, it was time to decide where we're going to go with our relationship and what we're going to do, she always told me about Ithaca, like this magical place, almost like expected unicorns when I got there, you know? <laughs> and when it turned out to be a magical place, it is really the place I love the most in this world Ithaca, and yeah. um, you know part of the reason is my kids are there too but I really love it there and we moved there kind of love and also we became part of a co-housing community and um, yeah that's where I've been for the last uh, 20 years almost now 20 years yeah, yeah. How many kids? Four kids. Pretty yeah. bunch, however. Yeah. So I have two kids and then um, my future wife, Sarah, yeah. has two kids. But for our sense of purposes, they're our kids, you yeah. know, and we've been together eight years, yeah. Are they pretty excited that this is what you do? Yes and no. I mean, they're excited about what I'm doing. It's sometimes tough leaving. Right. And it's also the reason why I like to be diverse, because this way it allows me with the cruise ships to take family with me. I do the state fairs. Some of them are distant driving distance where I can be home for dinner. So they get the perks from it. And also when I'm home, I'm really home. I don't get up at nine and then have to be home at five and I'm all stressed out, you know. So I'm really home. I bring them to school. I pick them up. We do homework together. We do everything together. So we have a really intense time when I'm home. And when I'm gone, when I'm gone. But also they get to see that their parent really does something that fulfills them and what they love for do living. And I think that has such a long-term effect on them too, if they get to see that. I think that's just as important. Yeah. Yeah. And then the show as well. I have another show. I do Circus Wunderbar, which is like a kid's show, kid's circus show, and they're part of it. Yeah. So they have skills. They have skills and they're cute. How old are the kids? Two nine-year-olds, 18 and 20. 18, 20, and two nine-year-olds. Yeah. And uh, they enjoy your show, or are they embarrassed sometimes? No, I don't think, no, they've never been embarrassed, no. No, at least they haven't shared that with me. Right. I mean, the perks are great, you know. I mean, you get to travel the world, and, you know, my son and my daughter, they came with me to New Zealand, they get to go with me on cruise ships, you know. And which kid doesn't love to go to the fair and have parking right on the fairground yeah. and get to go on all the rides without having to get more tickets? Yeah. I mean, the perks are just fantastic, Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of love in our family, so... That's yeah. good. I have a question for you, that having been around street theater for so long. Do you see there's a change in the style of shows from when you were starting out till now? We were talking about it earlier, and I don't think so much of a change, but a bit more diversity, lots of more different shows. You, you see more diverse street theater than you have. Do you think um, that's because there's more street performers? There's just more street performers, there's more street performer festival that evolve around street performing. And one of the great things is, you know, that's why I love street performing festivals, especially the good ones I enjoy doing, because we are the event. Most bookings we do, we, we are part of somebody else's party, and now we are the party. Mm-hmm. And that's just a great feeling, and you didn't have that 20 years ago so much. Right. I mean, Christchurch just started, Edmund just started. So now we have a lot of events where the street performer is the attraction, and I think that's just fantastic. And you see a lot of different things you wouldn't have necessarily seen 20 years ago, like theatrical street performance. You know, you see a lot of big, generic street shows too, but I mean, that's just all part of it, yeah. There's some shows that are built for a festival, 
mm-hmm. where a street performer has only done festivals and they've never done the street, and then there's some street shows that are, I guess you could say, the more generic kind or the more, I don't know, the hype show kind of thing. And you'll be rewarded financially. I mean, that's just <coughs> as simple as it goes, yeah. you know. Um, by technical default, the taller your unicycle gets, the more people will see you, the more money you make. And many people would say, well, you would be a fool not to take advantage of it if you could make all of a sudden, like, double your head just because you put another, you know, meter on your unicycle. Uh, why not? I don't think your show becomes anything less. It can, easily, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to be. And you still see a lot of great skill shows. We have, that's why I'm saying there's more diversity now out there. There's more different kind of shows than there has been before, yeah. Yeah, and I guess successful shows that are more diverse will influence... Yeah new performers to create yeah. more successful shows that are more diverse. Exactly, we have more to be inspired by, too. I mean, who was Robert Nelson inspired by? I mean, how many other street performers he got to see before he became now? I mean, you can see hundreds and hundreds of other street performers live and on YouTube and so forth. So there's so much inspiration. I think there's going to be only more and better and more fantastic shows. There's also the danger of, like, just... But now we have like hundreds of thousands of shows we can just take and just make a show without any skill. No, that's a danger, but there's so many other good stuff that beat them out, I think, yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's in the circuit schools in Australia. I think they pump out highly skilled show. But then does that water down what's happening? Because then if you have so many more, like, oversaturation of street performers and there's only a limited number of festivals... I haven't felt the effect. I can't say just because yeah. there's more circus schools out there and more performers coming out of them. Well, I was using that as an example. I, I got less bookings or something sure, yeah. out of it. You know, <laughs> often what comes out of it is that there's more circus school opening because then they're like fused on the worst. Like, well, I guess I can always open up another circus school. You know, <laughs> I mean, you go like to Finland and they have like five or six of them. So I wonder. I, I mean, I'm open to suggestion. I can't say it has affected me or. You learn on the street, you know. I know plenty of street performers who have so much great skills, but then they end up talking so much, and I wish, like, oh, why don't you just show me the tricks? Mm-hmm. Because there's a certain psychology to the street, you know, where you can influence people to give you more money or to get a certain effect in a bigger head, and that's not necessarily achieved often by the display of skill or tricks or character. It's often displayed by, you know, talking people into it. And... I rather watch skill, I must say. Personally. I think in a lot of cases, I feel like skill is what a lot of times makes more money. Besides, I mean, you combine that with saying something, but yeah. I think like skill shows, people see more of a value in a skill or a danger or perceived danger than they would in just a comedy or a talking type show. Comedy still is pretty strong, I think, yeah. And if you can combine the two, that's just the winning ticket. And yeah. then one can make the argument, it's like people get to see so many shows, so they have the standards are probably going to get higher, Yeah. you know? Yeah. So that if you want to take it to the next level, you really have to bring it to the next level. Yeah. You have to step it up a little bit, yeah. That being said, it's still amazing that people will laugh at the same old... Oh, place. I was just thinking <laughs> about the same thing, you know? <laughs> like... When there's six billion people on this planet, you yeah, know? know? And then... But however, how many people are watching shows here at the festival and are laughing at the same jokes they heard five other people? All we were talking about yesterday is like, let's find the jokes literally every single show uses... And they were, we came up with four or five lines. Which like, ones? Um, the number one was, oh, if you get the joke, kids, it's your parents' fault, is right. it? Almost every single show has some version of that joke, you know? But then the same token, if you deliver it well, this, it still works, yeah. you know? And I today, I mean, as you said, there's ten unicycle shows in there. In my show, I said, 
So how many of you seen a unicycle show? And there were like four people waving their hands. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like where you all come from, you hobbits, you know. Um, but it still works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't work for me necessarily, but we have a totally different standard of watching shows. Like you see us in the backstage standing there with our arms crossed, and instead of laughing, we go like, "Oh yeah, that was funny." Yeah. yeah, it's a funny bit. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. But you know, we, we don't react like the regular punters do on the street. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think yeah, there's something to be said with uh, lines and using lines to deliver them properly, and that being a successful device in a show. But then there's also someone like Jackie, Miss Australia, like '63, yeah. or yeah. Birdman. I mean, they're just so absurd and it's so brilliant. It's beautiful because they're dancing to their own tunes. Yeah. I don't know if they consciously refuse to uh, not use other people's material. Yeah. They're just so driven by that vision they have. I think they are. You know, I was saying that the show I did this morning, last night, well, yesterday, it was you know, oh, so yeah, hot. Yeah, yeah. It was just ridiculously hot yesterday, and I had my straitjacket with me, so I did my Nigel Blackstorm show. I did my escape as my finale. Which is a weird because I didn't do. I was could have had to try to remember how to do it as the character. Yeah. And then Jackie's like, "Oh, you had a safety net in your show. Like I didn't have a safety net. I don't have any safety net." I said, "Well, I didn't realize I did, but I did that." I said, "You know, I have the eleven twenty. So last night we we're hanging out. I said, eleven twenty in the morning. It's going to be dead." She goes, "Don't bring that straight jacket out. Force yourself not to do it. Force yourself to create something." maybe awkward or new or strange and so you know it's making that conscious decision is to do that and I think that's like she's one of the performers that does it's like I'm not gonna use anything that's standard I'm gonna create something and see what happens with it and I did and it ended up working it was really fun you have to leave the comfort zone absolutely but it's the same token um you know I'm playing devil advocate right now but you also have to pay the bills exactly you know and you also have to ask yourself, like, you know, who are you doing the show for, really? Are you doing it for the people? Do you want to give them a good experience? And leaving your comfort zone, sometimes you do go to places where not necessary, they're not necessarily translate into entertainment for other people. Yeah. They might enrich you as a person mm-hmm. or, like, eventually make your character stronger. But this moment in time, you might be better served. So I can see both sides. Yeah, and it does depend on the audience. I mean, you, you can have a lovely audience that's going to ride with you that wherever yeah. you're going. And, and then, then it just makes it better so whether regardless of whether you know you need to make money to survive in one single show you can potentially make more in that show that you're taking the chances on than just going with it i know that this works and you have to and you have to leave your comfort zone i think it's important you you have to find your way to do it everybody has an own approach but you have to be able to let go of material and try new things and just push yourself. Also keep it interesting for yourself. I mean, it was really nerve-wracking. And I actually had a physical reaction almost to it when I decided, it's like, okay, there's so many unicycles in here. I don't want to be another guy on a unicycle at the end of the show. So let's just do something else. I'm like, oh, so what am I going to do at the end of the show? You know, so I struggled with it, but I did it. And yeah, it worked great. Yeah. I don't even miss it. I'm yeah. just like, oh, God, I could have left the thing at home, you know, so... Mm-hmm. And then in some ways, that could make whatever you're going to do to finish the show stronger because now you're not using that unicycle as a crutch. Yeah, if you decide to let go of something, you're going to have to now fill it. Yeah. And often, like, you do material because you know it works. Yeah. And that's great to have that in your pocket. But, yeah, you always just sometimes just want to say, like, just be yourself. Just talk to people and funny things are going to happen. They will. But if you just press play then it's just going to be the same experience over and over and over again, which mm-hmm. can be a great experience, but it will be the same experience. 
So if you're looking for something new, you're going to have to create it, yeah. And how often are you adding new things, changing jokes, or...? Not enough. Yeah. I should do more, you know, and I do use a lot of, people would call it stock lines, I guess, you know. I try to make it my own and unique, and I write enough by myself, but I'm always thinking, I'm not adding it fast enough, I should act quicker on my ideas. I have plenty of ideas, but I'm not necessarily acting on them. Here I put in the whole GPS thing mm -hmm. yeah. at the end, so it's slow, but it's happening. Yeah. It's not stagnant, so I'm adding few little things here and there. Well, I think yeah. you get really comfortable when you know your show really well and it's successful. And Yeah, and as you say, you do... You have to push yourself to yeah. challenge yourself to add things because yeah. you're like, this is working. Yeah. And you have so much material anyway. You have so much material, yeah. For you, you can take things out, put things in, and it's still going to be a strong show. We exactly. Don't have to I, I have about like two hours of street stuff, yeah. you know, where I could just play with, you know. And, yeah have fun. I mean, the one thing I don't like to do and I've never, never been good at, and maybe that's why I don't like to do it, it's like the whole hype hype thing. Number one, people don't seem to respond when I do it. Like, you oh, know, everybody make a lot of noise for for nothing, you know. I just can't do it. I can't do it, number one, with a straight face, mm -hmm. and people just look at me, no, German boy, I'm not yeah. going to do that for you, you know. Yeah. So, and, and that shows I usually, I wouldn't say hate, but strongly dislike when shows still do all the hype thing, even though there's already 500 people there. It's mm -hmm. like, really? Just give them your best stuff, and if they like you, they're going to express themselves. They're not stupid people, you know? Yeah. So my approach is always like, make them fall in love with you, whatever it takes, you know? Just have a good time. I know the jokes are good. I know how to tell them. I know I have some good tricks, and it's just going to happen organically, and usually it does, you yeah. know? Yeah. Well, I think for you, it's very relaxed when you come out. You're having fun as soon as you step yeah. out and start performing then like you were saying earlier that people can feel that and you have so many jokes and it's so fast that people yeah. they get sucked in immediately because they have to it's basically like a ride like your show starts yeah. and people have to jump on to follow it yeah it, 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 it really is like think about it it's like a ride for your show because it's so fast and also you know you say you use some stock lines but you have your jokes but you put them together there's so much of it it doesn't feel like you're delivering. I don't do jokes that don't work for me, for example. Yeah. I, I've always found it like, surprising when I see people using standard jokes where, yes, they're funny, but not when you say them. Yeah. Not just because you're not a good comedian. It's just not your character. Yeah. You know, you should never say things like, if your parents don't give you any money, they don't love you. You shouldn't do that. You're a nice guy. That just doesn't work, you know. Find the jokes that work. Use them if you have to. Rewrite them if you're better. And also, I'm a firm believer, if you happen to do a stock line or something, you must make it better. You must make it sound better than whatever you heard it or whatever you got inspired by. If yeah. you can't make it better, don't touch it. It's just stupid, yeah. Yeah. I've and I'm guilty of it, too. Like, you know, today I found myself doing two Johnny Fox jokes, and while I was doing it, I'm like, ah, <laughs> bad. Which were those? Bad German. I put the um, sword swallowing in here, the balloon sword swallowing, and I did the scraping the balloon and did psycho the shower scene thing. I'm like... It's just horrible. I like to believe I did it because as a respect because I love that joke so much, but no, it was just stupid. Like, <laughs> no, I felt so stupid, you know, but you know, don't do that basically, yeah. you know. And also be be honest, be aware of it, you know. I remember as a good street story. Here's my street story for you. So when I started off, when I came to the United States, I didn't know much about street performing, you know, I didn't know the ethics of it, I didn't know how you work things out and how it goes. 
I went to Baltimore, the Inner Harbor, I did my first street shows there. I had a day off at Bush Gardens, and I said, like, let's try street performing. I went to the Inner Harbor, and I was like, oh, wow, this is making more than a week at Bush Gardens, so this is going to be history, that gig. Yeah. And I saw Jerry Vaughan. I don't know if you know Jerry Vaughan. And he's one of my favorite performers of all time to this day. And he did a tall unicycle show, very stand-up kind, very similar, like lots of jokes, great jokes, very unique jokes, really classic, unique jokes. And... I didn't know it wasn't okay for me to just take every single joke, you know. <laughs> and I took stuff that was really original. You, you know? just sat down with a notebook behind the show and started. But I didn't even have to write it down because yeah. they were so funny that I remembered them. And then I went back to Bush Gardens and I like did his. Not I wouldn't say we did a show because I couldn't because he's so much better. Like his tricks were so much better and so forth and his delivery. But I used jokes from him, you know. And then I did my first street performer festival. And all the big boys were there, Master Lee, you know, Robert Nelson, Lee Zimmerman, and so forth. And towards the end of the festival, Robert came to me and said, here's a phone number from Jerry Rowan, you should give him a call. And then it became clear to me, it's like, okay, this is bad boy, you know, mm-hmm. this is really bad. And But I really also thought, well, how nice of Robert, you know, in a sense, to say it to me, because yeah. everybody else was just like, oh, here we are using the standard stock line where... But Robert actually went to me, and then I went to Robert and said, like, look, I, you know, I'm a rookie, you know, um, do you mind hanging out and talking about it? So we talked about it for a few hours, and he was really sharing with his time and his philosophy what he thought about it, which is sort of similar to the one I have now, I think, you know, and, and I did call Jerry, you know, and I said, look, Jerry, this is really bad and embarrassing, you know, but I used a lot of your jokes, and I'm sorry, let me apologize to you, and I just want to let you know. So, yeah, and that was... That was really good. I mean, and I tried to be also that to other people, you know, like, you know, be honest to people. He was yeah. the only one saying something, and it really made me a better performer. I, you know, not that I'm not still using other people's joke at times, you know, but at least... <laughs> well, today, you just, <laughs> exactly, you just, at least I know, learn from these now I know I'm an asshole about it. No. <laughs> no, but it was important that he, because he was coming out and talking with me yeah. about it, and it made me a better performer, a better person for that matter yeah. because I became aware of it, you know. It's like, okay, whoops, yeah. It's like the right person, you know, someone who's been around for a while and who, because you had respect for him and you knew that, you know, he wasn't going to be an asshole. And Absolutely, just, yeah. You know, you're looking for advice. And I think that's that's also a difference, you know, who it's coming from when yeah. you're being challenged with whatever you're doing. Yeah, I think it's our responsibility, like, as we get older and wiser, I guess, yeah. to share. Yeah, yeah, it is. Anything else you want to add? I'm just, I'm, I'm almost wake up every morning giggling, you know. It's like, how awesome is this? You know, I really do live the dream in that sense. That, yeah, there's some drawbacks and so forth, you know, but, I mean, <laughs> you, you, know, you can't complain. I mean, even if there would be, nobody wants to listen to you, you know. Yeah. You're sitting in the plane, so what do you do for a living? Oh, oh I'm just flying on a cruise ship. You know, <laughs> nobody wants to listen to a guy who works like twice a week. Yeah. No, yeah. I have nothing. No regrets, man. No, no, no regrets. No. no, that's pretty sweet what we do. Make people laugh. I think it keeps us young as well. I think so. Yeah. You live longer. I mean, playful. My first marriage, I think, fell apart. I don't think there was a reason it didn't help that we didn't get along. But, I mean, that was hard for her to see that I really get to do what I love and she sort of settled for a job that not necessarily was the thing if she had a choice, like if she had been presented with it, she would have picked that, but yeah. she did it because she felt like, well, I'm going to have to be responsible now make an income with insurance and so forth you know, and then seeing me like being so carefree and not really having any problems with anything mm-hmm. around it that had to be harsh, you know so, yeah, really uh, yeah, well, that's a good life
Well, Helby, I think right. that was a. Uh, I think we got a lot of good stuff. Excellent. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Good time. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you. Like what you're listening to as much as a great street show you've seen? Well, then swing by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throw some love into our virtual hat by clicking on the donate button. Or consider picking up one of the few remaining Busker Hall of Fame t-shirts. Your contributions really do allow us to cover the hard costs of distributing this podcast and the other great content that can be found at buskerhalloffame.com. Music for today's podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Simply go into the podcast library, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. And while you're there, please do leave some feedback as these reviews help with our rankings and visibility. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor for an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't got enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Busker Hall of Fame. Follow us on Twitter at Busker Stories or sign up for our newsletter on the Busker Hall of Fame website. Are you a performer? Do you have kids? Well, then you may be able to relate to this reality as described by the skinny German juggle boy. I remember when my son was a teenager, you have some classic father teenage son tension, you know, and he was like, ah, oh, like, fuck, it sucks with my dad. And then his friends, they all thought my show was awesome. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, you have, like, the coolest dad. I don't want to hear about it. Shut up. <laughs> On behalf of myself, co producer Lindsay Lindbergh, who put together the preliminary edit of this episode, Magic Brian, who captured this interview, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. There's no other place in the world I'd rather be than right now, right here for you people. You know who you are.